Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is Zach DePew. He's the concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Before coming to Indiana, he played with the Philadelphia Orchestra. He also performs with the trio Time for Three, which I guess you could sort of describe as classical country bluegrass. It's a fusion group. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for having me. So coming back to Indianapolis after being in Cleveland, then being in Philadelphia. It's sort of a, a homecoming a little bit because you were born and raised in the Midwest. Yeah, I'm born, uh, well, four hours from Bloomington, about four and a half hours in a, a town up north in Ohio called Bowling Green. Bowling Green, Ohio, it's the home of Bowling Green State University and grew up there studying violin and music around the the campus there at the music school. Yeah, and your father was a composer at the School of Music, so you have it in your blood a little bit. A little bit, yeah. And uh, I have three older brothers, and he pressed all of us to have a musical instrument uh, when we, at the age of five. And violin was the instrument of the first brother's choice, and not wanting to buy other different instruments, he just had each of us play the violin because we had, you know, like the quarter size and the half size, and figured, no, I got, I got them all lined up, and then just each kid will be like a hand-me-down situation. Economical. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it should be said that all of your brothers, you're the youngest of four, you're all professional violinists. That's that's pretty amazing. It's a a rarity. I mean, especially as we all know, like um, studying classical music and just finding your own niche in the music world is is a tricky thing. But each of us are, are playing the violin professionally in different realms. I'm obviously, as you said, concertmaster of orchestra. My next brother, Jason, plays in Philly Orchestra. Then there's Alex, who doesn't have, who has nothing to do with classical music. He plays with an electric guitarist named Steve Vai. Some people might recognize that name. This yeah. uh, Steve Vai played with Frank Zappa, and uh, a movie in the mid '80s called Crossroads, a sort of popular movie that Steve was in, and he's got a real cult following as a rock electric guitarist, instrumentalist. So. Alex plays fiddle, electric fiddle for him, and keyboard for him. And then Wallace lives in Philly, freelances, and, and yeah, um, tours professionally with different projects um, that are happening. I think right now he's on the Star Wars tour as concertmaster for that. Really? So, yeah, he loves diversity and, and also just being able to choose when and where he plays rather than a job. Mm-hmm. So it's nice for him. Plus he likes to work on instruments, uh-huh. violins. Well, you guys also perform as a family, as a quartet of brothers. Yeah. <laughs> From time to time we do until the fighting starts and then we we part ways. No, we get along pretty well now that we're all adults and growing up. <laughs> what was that like growing up in such a musical family? Not just a musical family where you all play music. You all play the same instrument. Was there any competition there? I think, you know, my older brothers talk about uh, dad sort of you know, making comments like, well, if you can't play it, your your brother will play it to us, which I think is kind of funny now. But, you know, growing up in Bowling Green, I mean, certainly not just having four brothers playing the violin, but our dad really pressed us to play well because he figured you should be good at something when you graduate high school and he wanted us to be good. He didn't necessarily say you have to go into music. He just wanted us to be excellent at it. And so, yeah, there was a lot of pressing on us in younger years from being wanting to go out and play and just be a normal kid versus staying in and practicing. It didn't really breed competition within the brothers, at least from my perspective, the youngest, because, A, I didn't like playing the violin, 
And B, I was really pumped watching my brothers play. I always loved watching them play and hearing them play. And I get really nervous for when they would perform. Like, So it never from my, my end ever was a competitive thing. I think we just heard the concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra <laughs> say that he didn't like to play the violin as a kid. Is that true? But growing up, but I think it's partially because everybody else was playing it in my family. So was, I think it was like... I wanted to do something different. So I played a lot. I would I would not practice and I'd go outside and play and I love playing basketball and and my brothers nicknamed me the ball boy because you know, they'd make fun of me for always wanting to play. I kind of forced somewhat of a normal childhood on myself of being, you know, playmates with the area kids in the neighborhood and whatnot and, and, and still playing the violin, but you know, well enough that I would play with the family and I'd have a couple pieces that I played, but not like it wasn't until I was about 13, 14 that I really took on the violin myself and like really started practicing and got a lot of satisfaction out of it. Mm-hmm. And you started studying with teachers at Bowling Green, the university yeah. in your hometown. Yep. Then you went to Cleveland and then you went to Curtis. So talk a little bit about your advanced education in the violin. Well, first it was really fantastic to grow up in a small town like I did that still had a music school or a university with a music program. And as you know, it's actually a really excellent place. Um, the years that we were growing up, it was a, it was a really cool gathering of musicians that were brought there. Um, just, I mean, everybody and anybody. Um, I think now one of the voice teachers teaches here, one of my dad's closest friends, Mr. Pulimanos. So again, it was just, it was wonderful growing up around that. Leaving Bowling Green, you know, it was it was important to to get out of town. Um, having grown up around the university, to go somewhere else. I went to Cleveland. I I actually probably because I didn't practice in my early years, I didn't get into Curtis my first go around, and I went to uh, Cleveland Institute and studied there with Bill Prusel, who's the concertmaster, Cleveland Orchestra IU grad, and I loved studying with Bill. Um, he was just a really fantastic violinist and very natural player and inspired me to practice a ton. I was practicing all the time. That's when it really, you know, and my dad, we were just talking before we got on here. My dad had just retired from teaching at Bowling Green and the tuition at uh, Cleveland Institute was getting a little pricey for a retired uh, school professor. So Bill was like, well, let's go audition at Curtis again. Let's get in there and maybe we'll get you a little more money here at CIM. And I got into Curtis. CIM didn't give me more scholarship. And, and of course, Curtis, being what it is, decided to go there and, and continue studying. Obviously, missing the fact that I, I had my teacher um, in Cleveland. I mean, he was the the guy for me. So I studied with Jamie Laredo, who now teaches here as well, um, and Ida Kavafian, and was really lucky that they filled that role of teacher to me um, the way they did. They were great mentors and great great people to study with and be around. I mean, just their their insight into violin, uh, the larger scope of it. It's pretty cool. I guess in the spirit of full disclosure, I should say that we did grow up together. We're, we're both from Bowling Green, Ohio. We do go back a little bit. In addition to playing all this classical music throughout all of your childhood, you also played some bluegrass and some country music. You're a fiddler. How'd you start that? The um, older brothers played um, in the summertime uh, at fairs in the area. There's the Wood County Fair, which is right there in Bowling Green, which had a fiddle contest um, in the middle of it. And then 
other fairs had the same thing, state fairs. And, and so the brothers would, would go and travel around the area, Indiana, Ohio, state fair, Indiana state fair, Michigan state fair. And they'd play the fiddle contests and sort of getting to know. And it, it actually became part of the family's repertoire too. And And I think part of the intrigue for my dad was that all four of us were playing. You know, we could stand up and we'd play a piece by a movement of solo Bach and then play a fiddle tune by Bill Monroe and then play a traditional tune that we learned. And it was just that mix of stuff. It was, you know, if, if you watched a show from 25 years ago, it would probably seem really primitive now. But it, it, and it was very cut and dry. This is a fiddle tune. This is a Bach sonata. This is a concerto, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it certainly was a great influence to be around American roots music, Appalachian style, fiddling, learning a small corner of the repertoire. I mean, there's like thousands of tunes and, you know, I'd probably know maybe 20, 25. But digesting that style growing up outside of classical music was really cool and a lot of fun and being able to utilize the chops we were getting by studying classical music and then play some fiddle tunes. It was it was a nice release. That's an interesting point. Talk about the the differences and the similarities in playing classical music versus fiddling. Well, you know, for fiddling, it's it's um, it's not about you know with with classical music, it's so much in the violin is about tone production and sound and and doing it in the most relaxed fashion, so that you can actually produce the the, the more relaxed I find I am, the bigger the sound and the less I'm forcing and all that good stuff. And with with fiddling, it's more you know certain techniques that are used to play beautifully in classical music with that large acoustic sound aren't necessary to fiddle. I mean, it's not about that large sound or that full sound. It's about the style and and the um, swing and the feel of what you're doing. Certainly tone is part of that, but the tone is a, it's a little more nasal and it's, it's just, it's, there's, you don't need nearly as much flexibility in the actual tone production to fiddle um, that you do in classical music. I mean, certainly like playing classical music is a very vocal thing to do and a lot of times, you know, so many teachers say, do it like a vocalist would do it. I'm sure, you, you know, you've right. heard that on the oboe and teachers just sing it. Right. <laughs> so, right. but with, with fiddling, it's, it's, um, it's a much, much more focus on, on feel and style and rhythm is a big, um, big thing. So we're actually, we're lucky. We're going to hear you play a little bit of this Bill Monroe tune. I see your violin taunting us over there. <laughs> and then through the magic of radio, <laughs> we're going to, hear what Time for Three did with this. So uh, we get sort of the whole span of this Bill Monroe tune. Talk me through it a little bit. Well, I thought it'd be, it'd be cool, you know, to share with you and your your audience. Um, the, this is a particular tune that I grew up playing. Actually, my, it's funny. My dad always always would say this is a, a, a tune that could be played at a, at a fairground or in Carnegie Hall as far as he was concerned. Like it was, he thought it was that cool and that, that, that um, well-written of a tune. It's called Jerusalem Ridge. It's a fiddle tune. Um, but certainly, you know, the way I grew up learning it and then hearing Time for Three, um, it's twist on that tune. I thought it'd be kind of cool for your audience to just hear me play the head and then hear what Time for Three did with the, the tune after knowing that as the melody. So let's take a listen to this then. Music of Bill Monroe. This is Jerusalem Ridge. Thank you. 
Music there by the group Time for Three, Zach DePew, one of the violinists in that group. And the interesting thing about your career, you, you play classical music, you fiddle, and then you sort of get to combine those things and then <clears throat> flip it and do something completely different with this chamber group you're in called Time for Three. Yeah. How did that come about? You guys met in Curtis. Well, we we met at Curtis. There were there are three of us in the group, and and we sort of call ourselves now a classically trained garage band because we create in that way, like a a teenage garage band would, or an adult garage band would. We experiment and and trial and error type things. That's how we compose. And it, we met at Curtis. We all came to Curtis, obviously, to study classical music. Um, I had this fiddling background. The bass player had a very large jazz background. Um, he'd been playing jazz since he was 15. He started working professionally as a jazz bassist when he was 16. Went up to New York, studied at Manhattan, double majored in jazz and classical. He auditioned three times to get into Curtis and finally got in. Um, the other fiddle player was always, in addition to being just a really amazing violinist, classical violinist, he, Nick Kendall, he studied um, hip-hop. Not studied. He played hip-hop. He had a trash can drumming group. <laughs> and so he always wanted to be part of a band. Nick was like the one guy, I think when we were in school, his band was called Baraka, and he would play fiddle. And there was a mandolin player. There was a drummer. He would play trash can drums with it. And Nick was always experimenting. So the three of us sort of, you know, by osmosis and, oh, you jam? Well, let's play together. And it'd be after orchestra. And... Certainly there were other people that were part of these hangs too. Like we get done with orchestra on a Thursday night, 9 p.m., and hang back at the hall there at Curtis and and just have a free open jam. And like I think one of our friends, uh, F.A. Baltajigili, is a cellist, Turkish cellist, who's now second chair in Philly Orchestra. He would bring in all these, you know, like Turkish melodies and stuff that he would play. And, and then he'd listen to like me play like a fiddle tune and then Renan with like some jazz and Nick like laying down a hip-hop beat to this you can imagine like and then learning from each other and so it was definitely like a melting pot going on there and it really the school found out that we were doing this and just booked us for a gig and of course as being students we were just pumped to get a gig and we went and played this this 30 minute set for a chemical company in dc (laughs) and they freaked out like with what we did and because it wasn't classical music it wasn't bluegrass it wasn't it was just like a string sound and a style coming at them that they had never heard, which was, I guess, when we stepped back, we were like, wow, this is pretty cool. Let's just keep doing it. So that's how it started. It's definitely a really interesting group giving you a sound that you've never heard. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. It's so, not on purpose either. It's not like we like got in the lab and said, all right, two fiddles and bass. This will be perfect. <laughs> right. Know? That's definitely not. That wouldn't be anybody's like perfect plan for a ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two fiddles and bass. It, but, you know, it, it doesn't sound like that. You guys get such an amazing sound out of it. So let's take a listen right now. This is Time for Three.
Music there by the group Time for Three. Zach DePew, one of the violinists in that group. This is WFIU's Profiles. Zach is our guest today, concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I was listening to some of your stuff online. One of the most beautiful things I've heard in the longest time was your rendition of Alleluia, a song by Leonard Cohen. It was two violins and bass. And you also do music by Imogen Heap. People might know um, she's sort of a a folk pop artist. How do you select the music that you guys are going to play? It really, it's funny because like I can't remember how we chose to do Hallelujah or how we, I know how we chose Hide and Seek. Nick saw the movie The Last Kiss with Zach Braff Mm -hmm. and that moment that that track, Hide and Seek, was used, he was like, oh my God, and wouldn't strings sound great with this and I bet me and the guys could do this. And that was like four, whenever that movie came out, four or five years ago and it wasn't until last summer that we actually arranged it. That arrangement is the first time our friend, Steve Hackman, who we went to school with and ended up producing our album, uh, he made that arrangement. And he came to us with like a written out part for each of us. And then we, I don't know, spent 20, 25 hours rewriting stuff. You know, this doesn't work. This doesn't sound right. And, and you know, by the end, it was like, you know, arranged by Steve Hackman slash Time for Three. But he really laid the groundwork for us to work off of. And we're finding that a great springboard now uh, to work from, platform to work from with arrangements especially because, um, you know, each one of us, the three of us, can come with a different idea of what the arrangement should be. But when we have a fourth come in that we all really respect and we like and, and appreciate, we work off of that. And it's just the, the speed is – is um, it's faster. It's a faster process that way because we – we'll spend a month – on a piece and still not have it. And it's more like we surrender the the arrangement rather than perfect it. Yeah. So Well you guys are all arrangers, you're composers, you guys improvise as well. You sort of you, you do it all in this group. So uh, what's it like to go to a time for three show? For someone <laughs> who's never been to one and I, I hope to change that soon, uh, what do you guys present to the audience? I mean it's sort of it, it, we play and perform in performing arts um venues. Um but the vibe is is definitely a little more – we like people to feel like they're in a living room um, enjoying string music and enjoying music that maybe is a little more familiar but then some new stuff. We balance the two. Although we find a lot of the performing arts venues, um, a lot of the like subscribing audiences don't know who Imogen Heap is. And it's cool for us to sort of be a conduit that – classical musicians appreciate folk and pop artists in a respectful way, not just like background music or just stuff to go out to the bar on Friday night, but that there's a, there, there is music in here that is of value long-term and we just present it in that, in that, that sort of temple of, you know, performing arts center. And, and then we get a lot of, well, so who's Imogen Heap? And we'd be like, well, she's a really cool creative artist from the UK and, they're like, wow, I'll have to check that out. And hopefully they buy our CD before they go buy hers. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's just really – it's wonderful to to be classical musicians but be open to and hopefully capable to cross over and play with different um, people and artists. 
talk about how you balance your life then, because this group is is taking off. It's really successful. But then you also have your commitments with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra being concertmaster. How do you do it? You know, the the trio, we, we assign each other jobs and we get things done when we can get them done. Obviously, a priority um, for me is the Indianapolis Symphony and, and serving as concertmaster there. One of the great things is that the orchestra hired uh, as a principal guest concertmaster, Alex Carr, who teaches here at IU um, for a certain number of weeks, depends on the season, but he comes in and 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 plays concertmaster for a few of the weeks out of the year. Um, I think this year he did like six weeks, and that gives me just that that even more, that little bit of extra time to go and be with the guys and work and and create. We've been having composers we've been interacting now with composers and and having pieces written for us so the process has gone from spending hours a day together writing but instead having a composer create we learn our parts we get together we rehearse together understand the piece but hopefully we're coming to that rehearsal already understanding the piece so the first concerto was by jennifer higdon which we premiered with Philadelphia Orchestra, and, and we've run that through, and now that's being played with orchestras. And we just premiered a, a piece by Chris Brubeck, son of Dave Brubeck, and it's sort of a study of jazz. And this piece goes through, like, every style of jazz, 20s, 30s, bebop, you know, just, I mean, it's really cool, and it's been really cool to learn. And the n- next big project, um, as we take the Brubeck and the Higdon around, is William Bolcom is uh, going to be creating a piece, which we'll start working on with him in the fall. So our process is slightly different where I can learn my part and what we're going to do at home as I'm being concertmaster of the orchestra in addition to learning all the repertoire that we're doing at the symphony. And and then, of course, you know, getting out to perform, Alex comes in for that extra bit of time to free me up and, and, and let me go. So it's just... And, of course, the orchestra's happy to have a caliber concertmaster like Alex Carr. It's one of the finest concertmasters in the world. So it, right. we're really fortunate yeah. to be able to have, have this type of situation. Well, it's a real balancing act is what it sounds like for you. Yeah. Boy. Just well, planning ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit more about Time for Three, where you think music, your career is going in the future. And we're actually going to get to hear you play a little bit later in the program. This is WFIU's Profiles, Zach DePew is our guest today, concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Not all violinists want to play in an orchestra. A lot of violinists want to make a career playing concertos. So why did you choose the orchestra route and not the soloist route? I find that, you know, I enjoy being on stage with people, making music with people and people that I know, that I have friendships with. Um, I, I value that type of thing. I mean, being a soloist and and Outside of the fact that it's one of the hardest careers to have and loneliest, but you also don't get to experience that necessarily that type of environment of, oh, I look over, I'm making music with the cellist that I know. And, you know, we, it's nice to look over and have a memory with somebody, too. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of that way. I, so the orchestra has just always been a wonderful platform. Um, being in the section of Philadelphia was great. I learned a lot of repertoire and a lot of my classmates were in the orchestra and we had just, we had a lot of fun. Um, the job here, you know, obviously a new situation. Um, and now I get to be a leader, but it's sort of like a leader amongst equals type thing, you know, cause it's just, you know, 
86 people on stage with you and, and you're all making music. But it's just nice to have an idea of, um, you know, an experience together and, and um, time together that you know what the other person's going to do, how they how they feel, the phrase, whatever. And then, of course, being in the trio is cool because it's with my buddies still. We have we get to be soloists, but it's not me by myself, which I never really got off on. I was never like really – it was more stressful than it was – exciting like positive exciting I, I liked doing it but it wasn't what I wanted to do every day of my life and it's nice I get to do it a couple times a year with the orchestra I play a concerto time for three will play a concerto with the orchestra around the country and that's a lot more fun getting to play something with those guys yeah you're nearly three years into this job with Indy yeah do you have any special favorite memories anything that's happened in the past three years that you've really valued well, we've had some great, wonderful experiences with, well, our former music director, Mario Venzago. We did some Bruckner Symphony. We did a, a Das Rheingold Wagner, which was really a wonderful experience getting to do a piece like that with a artist like Mario. Mario is a really fantastic musician. And, and um, one of the biggest things for me has been experiencing this repertoire, the just, you know, the, the basic orchestral repertoire from that seat which is very different than the seat that I was holding in Philly Orchestra. And it's it's strange. It's one of those things where you just have to do it to get to know it and understand it. There's no – I don't know if there's really a handbook to doing that job and, and experiencing the repertoire and, and how to go about it. And I'm still learning. And I, that's what's so awesome about being in this job now is that I feel like I'm still learning. It's the third year, but – I do feel like my third year in Philly Orchestra, I was sort of like looking around ready to ready to do something something more in addition to it. It's sort of why the trio was, you know, getting busy when yeah. I was there. Um so but this has been this has been great. Well you're a young guy too. Normally if you go to an orchestra concert, I guess the stereotype is you look up at the concertmaster seat and it's a gray, weathered old dude who's been there, you know, for twenty, thirty years. You're young. So have you run into any any conflict with people because of your age? No. No, not at all. I think probably I get away with a little bit because of my age because <laughs> I look young and it's like, oh, well, he's young. No. I, I have not run into anything. I'm not the first young young guy. I mean a lot of other concertmasters that I've always looked up to were much younger than I am or was when I got this job when they I mean even Alex I think was 26 when he was concertmaster of the Concertgebouw which is like one of the world's most established orchestras in I mean in the world it's it's so I guess um you know it never really entered my brain age it was more I just knew that I had to play well and and I still strive to do that it's a really important um aspect of the job and but age never really came up. I think it was more, and I've had a very good supporting cast of principals there to, sh- you know, sort of be like, "Hey, check this out. Don't do that." It's been helpful. Nice. It's been really helpful. Yeah. I really want to know about the audition process. Concertmaster is um, a lot of people say the most important chair in the orchestra. So, what was the process of getting this job for you? What what hoops did they make you jump through? Well, the the trio came and played with the orchestra and. As we were there for a couple of days, people were like, "So you were in Philly Orchestra?" I was like, "Yeah," and 
And then they said, well, you know, we have a concert master opening here. Would you want to come for a week? Because um, we've been trying everybody out in this chair and would you would you want to come and try? And 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 so I said, sure. And it's been a week sitting concert master. The week went great and they had me come back to do a formal audition. And then they offered the job after that, right right after that audition. You know, it's true. I mean, with Concertmaster, it's one of those positions that, you know, you you have a cattle call audition for a seat like that. But, you know, it's such a unique job. And each orchestra may be looking for a unique situation, a, a different situation. And Indianapolis certainly was looking. They, they had identified Alex as this guy that they couldn't have full-time because he teaches here at IU, but they wanted to have him there. I mean, such a great player and concertmaster. So they were trying to figure out, well, how can we tie this in? And so they said, well, we need a type of person that will do the job and do it well, but we'll also go and, and have another thing going on so we can bring Alex in for this guest concertmaster. And so you start whittling down how many people have that type of career going on. It, 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 and, and experience. I mean, I don't think they wanted somebody just fresh out of school for a job like this. It's, you know, it's a, it's a major symphony and, and it's a big job. So I just seem to fit that puzzle piece mm-hmm. here for where I was in my career and, and where it's been going. Um, and it still still fits. So You sort of have a unique perspective on classical music and the music world in general. Because you have your toes in all these different parts of music. You've got this really prestigious job in the classical music world, but you also tour with your band. So, you know, you can see things from a variety of different angles. Mm -hmm. Things are happening in the classical music world that make a lot of people nervous. They say audiences are decreasing and they're getting older. That tuition at music schools like the Jacobs School of Music is just getting more expensive to study music. Some people say that the demise of classical music is upon us because of factors like this. Mm-hmm. From your point of view, how do you see it? It's it's funny because I, when I was 15, uh, Joe Silverstein talked about this. And he said, you know, somebody mentioned to him when he just got in concertmaster Boston Symphony or soon after that, well, it's great to have somebody young like you because our audience is dying. And if you look out, it's just everybody's got gray hair and, and yada, yada, yada. And, and he was... You know, he got that job when he was 29, and when he was telling the story, he was 75. Wow. And he's like, that concern has never gone away. It's That's always been something that people have said exists. I tend to feel like classical music as as a, um experience is something that people come to later in life, only because it uh, it's a different experience. It's not a – a Brahms symphony is not a four-minute pop tune that just comes on and you can – you bop your head too, and 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 you have a good time. It's a it's a different experience. I I like to think that you know the experiences. So I mean, just saying that classical music is dying. I, I I tend to think that people just come to it later in life, and I hope that that continues. I guess we'll see. I mean, on on that front, in terms of like what I'm doing and and my interests, you know, it, it, it intrigues me bringing American roots music. Jazz, bluegrass, the stuff that um, seemingly has been created here on this soil into uh, and giving it this sort of artistic vision using the uh, orchestra as the palette 
and bringing in this roots music and creating a symphony, a concerto, a tone poem based on that type of repertoire, just like Bartok's done with Hungarian music and Shostakovich is done with Russian folk literature. I mean, there's just so many examples of this. And I mean, we have Copland and, and Bernstein. And it's just great to be one of the artists that maybe is capable of the style of roots music, having at least a taste of it, and and bring it into the classical building, so to speak. Um, there are other players doing it, too. I mean, Yo-Yo's doing it. Josh Bell's been doing it. I don't. Time for Three doesn't profess to be the first at all. It's just I think we're just continuing um, this sort of movement that's been going on. And hopefully it excites people. I, I hope that it gives a certain sense of pride for people here that this type of artistic quality is going on here and that hopefully we'll be able to take overseas and influence European orchestras with a different sound, a different style that takes time to learn too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, again, I don't know how far the rabbit hole goes on that. Um, it's it's just what I've enjoyed and been fortunate enough to have a venue to present it in. Um, and people seem excited about it. I guess I could mention too, you know, Time for Three is doing a series in Indianapolis called Happy Hour, which is, you know, uh, an event um, maybe four times a year, people come to the hall at 5 o'clock, cocktails, food in the lobby till 6.30, and then they come in for an hour concert. And the concert is Time for Three's original repertoire with orchestra, maybe us, Time for Three arrangement that we've made, just the three of us, uh, movements from orchestral repertoire. It's geared towards young professionals. Our last one that we just did, actually, it was it was funny. The moment that we did the last moment of Scheherazade on the program, the place was the quietest throughout the night at that point, and it also got a standing ovation from a group of people that wouldn't necessarily see Scheherazade and go, oh, let's go see Scheherazade or here, let's go hear Scheherazade. Um, but giving it to them and them hearing it, they they automatically had an appreciation for it, and it's incredible music. I think it's just the the manner in which it's presented, and uh, happy hour also. The, the The hall is lit differently. We use lighting for the for the experience. We we know that our generation, more than any, is very visual, and so it's important to have a really cool ambiance in the room. Um, but hopefully, as as they continue and we show them little snippets of classical music, they'll go check it out um, when it actually gets performed in its entirety, and later in life, and they'll remember and. You know, maybe when they're 65, they'll go and hear Scheherazade and they won't care about the lights. All they'll care about is the experience hearing it because that's really all that matters with, with really great music. This happy hour event that you guys are talking about, you played Scheherazade at it, which is, as you said, a, a really standard classical piece. But you put it on this program of all different types of music. So we're going to get to hear you play uh, the solo from Scheherazade. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the most famous um, concertmaster solos. Um, and, and the concert, the happy hour concert, you know, I was playing with Time for Three as soloist. Um, we shared a movement of the new concerto by Chris Brubeck. We shared some original compositions, um, one of which was called Ecuador, um, cool, fun Latin-based tune. And then in the middle of the show, I, I sat down in, in the concertmaster's seat and played, you know, Scheherazade and uh, the beautiful melody from that, which 
you know, sounds like this. Music of Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. We heard Zach DePew play a little bit of the violin solo from Scheherazade live in the WFIU studios. I feel like I'm in an audition now. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting that you're not only changing the repertoire, adding some pop and folk elements to classical music concerts, but you're changing the experience of going to a classical music concert, as you said, with with lighting, with making the concert perhaps shorter, an hour concert is shorter than most classical music concerts. So the whole experience, it sounds like, is, I mean, we're, we're changing a little bit the way we think about it. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an experiment. And certainly it's not, you know, for me, and I think most classical musicians, it's not the way we want a Beethoven symphony to be presented because there's still, you know, we are the aural arts, you know, we're the... We are we are for that sense, you know. The visual arts are for the eyes, and this is for the ears. And it's one of the things that probably I find that, including myself, our generation has lacked a little sensitivity in um, sometimes. And not to downgrade us at all, we've just been a very visual generation. And you know, I just I think I, I just went to see the movie Sherlock Holmes, and I, I couldn't understand half of what was being said. But there was so much visual going on in the movie that. <laughs> And so many of my friends said, yeah, I guess I didn't care because there was so much visually going on that it told the story right there. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of value in a great dialogue. There's an actually hearing and understanding what, what a character is saying. And same with music, really hearing what's going on, being sensitive to the different palettes that are being thrown at you and really taking it in through the ears. Hopefully this is just a way to present it to our generation and maybe one generation older than us that resensitize Mm. their ears. You love music, obviously. You love it. You love uh, different genres of music, different types. Tell me what you're listening to right now. I've been digging on a band called Muse a lot. I mean, obviously I listen to a lot of classical music. I like to listen to, if it is a... Beethoven Symphony, obviously that's a German composer. I try to listen to a different like German orchestra play that. Russian music, the National Russian Orchestra is fantastic. You know, I just I like to hear the the players that have a attachment from their heartstrings to the music. Yeah. Czech music, I mean it's great to hear the Czech fill. So I listen to a lot of that. But I've been digging on right now, you know, in terms of pop music, Muse a lot. I'm very much enjoying talk about um, totally lifting classical music straight away from, say, Chopin and putting it into your your music, um, even verbatim. It's pretty cool because they're using the the modern day palette that people, you know, the everyday person can recognize electric guitar, drums, electric bass, piano, but electrified piano. It's a great experience. So I'm enjoying that. 
I really got into their stuff lately. So yeah. I've, if I do like put on something rock or whatever, I put them on. That. Yeah, it's a great band. Yeah, you like them? Oh, I love them. Yeah, really good band. You've had so much success at such a young age. Where do you see yourself 30, 40 years down the road in your career? Small question for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, anybody that's listening to this, if somebody asked you that, what would you say? <laughs> you know, it's like, God, I mean, there's so many variables. I mean, life in general. With music, you know, I would like to continue maxing out right now, performing and developing repertoire with the trio for solo violin. I mean, I still would love to see a, and it's been experimented with. Uh, Hillary had one with Edgar Meyer. Creating a concerto, an American concerto for violin at some point is in the back of my mind. You know, having, I don't know, somebody using the material of like, let's say, a Bela Fleck, but using the orchestration capabilities of Bill Brown. He did the orchestration for Wicked. He did the orchestration for Josh Bell's West Side Story Suite. You know, I'd love to see the meeting between the great orchestrator with a great creator of American folk music, Bela being one of them. Um, Edgar, Edgar is along those lines as well. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I'd love to see a, a cool violin concerto in that way and maybe even utilizing electric fiddle in that. But doing that now, because I feel like as I get older, I'll probably want to share my experiences with um, students and teach and not necessarily be out on, under the light um, as much as I am now performing but probably sharing my experiences and hopefully influencing the next generation of, of musicians. Um, openness, you know, obviously the being able to play the violin is important and sharing how I approach the violin just, you know, mechanically, but then all the different ways in which you can have a career with this instrument that uh, stem outside of orchestral or string quartet, but there's a lot of other there are a lot of other avenues and being somebody that students could come to i'd love to i'd love to be able to share that those experiences and, and help help some careers happen yeah so zach depew the professor we could see that <laughs> in the future yeah zach depew concert master of the indianapolis symphony orchestra one of the two violinists in two violin and bass group time for three and general amazing musician <laughs> Thanks so much for coming into the WFIU studios. Thanks for having me, Annie. It's been great. This has been WFIU Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.